Good morning. And this morning our passage comes out of the book of Galatians, chapter 6, 1 through 5. Now I'd ask that you'd give your attention to the reading of God's Word and we'll get right into it. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking at yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to one another. For each one will bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kathy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as one church, as one body, as one family, uh, to be instructed by your word and uh, to be taught and corrected and, and understanding how we ought to live in this world in response to the salvation that we have in Christ. And Father, I want to lift up those who couldn't be here uh, for whatever the reason, and uh, for some um, it's an illness, for others um, they're taking time off, and I pray that whatever the situation is that um, you grant those who uh, are sick a quick recovery and that you uh, be with those who are family members and that you comfort them through that time and uh, you give them the strength to carry on and father I also want to pray for those who are on vacation that you give them a, a time of rest and give them protection and that you give them a safe trip home and I ask that you come and speak to us now as we get into your word and we commit this time to you in your name we pray amen now, over the course of the, the series in Judges, we've been talking about how to identify the sin and the idols in our lives and what makes them so dangerous. But we've also been talking about how the grace of God forgives us and frees us from those idols. And this morning, our passage addresses the issue of what our involvement ought to be with those who are caught in sin. Um, but before we get into the sermon, um, I just want to give us all the the same understanding of what we mean by sin. And I want to use the definition that Pastor Chad used last week. So the definition of sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created and not being or doing what he commands. I'll read that again. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created and not being or doing what he commands. Before we get into the sermon, I want to start by asking you some questions, and you can just answer these in your head. Um, think about a person that you know at some point or another who was caught in sin. And when you first found out about their circumstances, how did that change, number one, the way that you viewed that person? Secondly, how did that change the way you treated them? And lastly, what was your initial reaction when you first found out that they were in sin? Now sometimes when somebody we know falls into sin, our first reaction can be cold, it can be harsh, it can even be aggressive, or it could be a combination of all three. We may even believe that we have the best intentions in mind for somebody, but sometimes we end up moving or speaking too fast before we use the godly discernment. And sometimes that takes the form in giving ultimatums. You may have been helping somebody for a period of time, and they simply aren't living up to your standards. 
And so you draw that line and you let them know that if they don't get their act together, you're done helping them because you're simply wasting your time. Sometimes it's evident in the way we view people in sin. Sometimes we think that what a person did was so reprehensible, they don't even deserve restoration. Now, we generally don't think this way about the small things, such as kids telling lies or someone embellishing a story to stroke their egos. But what about the pastor in Western Washington last year who was convicted of child molestation? Now, he's going to be serving some jail time, and rightly so. But what if he was in need of a Christian brother to walk along his side towards getting right with God? Would you do it? Or would you think that he's simply not deserving of the time and effort? Sometimes we get a sense of pride when others fail. When they sin, it makes us look like we're better Christians than they are. And we get that attitude of thinking, man, what they did, I would never do that. I'm too good for that. But the fact is, God didn't build his church to have that attitude regarding sin in other people's lives. His word tells us that we ought to restore one another. And this passage today tells us that if our aim is to restore a brother or sister who is caught in sin, we ought to do it with gentleness. In order for that to happen, we need to take some precautions in our own heart. And I think understanding what Paul was dealing with in his day might help us understand why. Now you see, from the time that Paul planted the church in Galatia to the time that he wrote this letter, there had been Pharisees and Judaizers that had infiltrated the church, and they began to rework and rewire Paul's theology that he taught to the people. And Paul taught that you are saved by faith in Christ alone, whereas the Judaizers were saying, well, no, not really. You're really saved by keeping all the laws of Moses. And so what began to happen is that these converts fell back into legalism, and they were greatly burdened by trying to keep all these laws, but they couldn't do it. They were failing miserably. Now, how many of you would agree that life is tough enough on its own? And how many of you would agree that the consequences of sin makes it even tougher? Well, the problem with the people in Galatia is that they were under the impression, because of the Pharisees, that when they sinned, they could make up for it if they kept the laws that they imposed on them. But again, the problem was that they couldn't do it. And so their burdens became even heavier, and they were tripping over sin after sin after sin, and they were stuck in this hopelessness. And then on the other end, the spiritual elites, they grew proud because they thought that they were better keepers of the law than they were. They had less sin in their lives than those people who were failing. So to make a long story short, people were without hope in their sin. Pride was swelling in those who were the spiritually elites. And this led to arguments and envying the spiritual prowess of others, splits in relationships, and resentment toward other fellow believers. And frankly, restoration wasn't even on their radar. The priority at that time was distinguishing who were the better or the worse Christians. So Paul finds out this is all going on, and this is where uh, we are in our passage today. And we need to know that restoration is only possible when we follow God's procedure. Verses 1 through 2 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now when someone is caught in sin, it could be for a number of reasons. But the reason shouldn't change our attitude towards the danger that that person is in. And the danger is that sin left undealt with could completely ruin a person's life. It doesn't care. 
As we heard last week, no sin is safe sin. And so the question is, what are we to do about that? And Paul tells us that we ought to restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. And I've already tossed that word out quite a bit. So what's the idea with regard to restore? Restore is the idea of returning something back to its previous condition. Uh, it was also used as a medical term for a doctor describing uh, how he would set a broken bone. And one man says that the whole atmosphere around the word lays not on punishment, but on the cure. And so what Paul is saying here is that when a person's life is broken because of sin, God works through his word and through his people to correct them and get them back on the right path. And the phrase, those who are spiritual, isn't talking about those who are spiritually elite or suggesting that this is only a job for the pastor or the elders to do, but this is a job for every believer. Every believer. And following God's procedure means that we ought to do it gently. Now, the gentleness that Paul has in mind is a gentleness that directly reflects the gentleness Christ shows towards us. So that means that we should be patient with the person even if the progress isn't as fast as we think it ought to be. We shouldn't hold the wrong over the person's head, reminding them of what they did wrong and what kind of person we really think they are. But to the contrary, we should encourage them to stay the course with a plan to defeat sin. And if they slip up, we shouldn't simply pull the plug on them. Because if a person is willing to take the necessary steps forward, we ought to endure with them through the process, even through their slip-ups, as Christ does with each one of us. Now, I know that some people have a problem with the idea of gentleness being used in the same sense with sin because they don't see how the two are compatible. And so what they do is they, they go to the extreme and they ask, well, so what are you saying? Should I just be nice to the person and not directly deal with the sin? And no, that's not what's going on here. We should never withhold the truth about the nature of sin from somebody. You know, it's perfectly appropriate to let them know that the path they're on will only further hurt them and others more. Gentleness doesn't mean that you have to avoid having a painful discussion, but what it does mean is that you ought to do it with a gentle tact. And you should be aware, however, that sometimes, no matter, no matter what you say or how you say it, it's still going to cause some pain. Just like when a doctor is setting a broken bone, no matter how gentle they are, it's going to hurt. But know this, that the pain of restoration is far less than the pain that sin will further cause somebody. And as this process goes on, God wants you to be on the alert as well that you don't fall into sin either. This is like when you try pulling someone out of a ditch, then you end up getting stuck too. Now, when Paul says that each one looking to yourself so that you will not get tempted, I don't think he's referring only to the same temptation that the person is struggling with. It may include those temptations, but it also includes, uh, but I think he means uh, temptation in the broader sense, um, even if it's unrelated to someone else's struggle. Now, for example, what are some of the temptations that we may have when we find out about someone's sin? Sometimes we want to tell other people about it. We want to, we want to gossip. Sometimes we have outbursts of anger where we become short-tempered with people. Sometimes we get sarcastic when we make snide remarks. Sometimes we want the recognition from others for doing such a noble thing as trying to restore somebody. We have a tendency to become proud in ourselves. You know, it's these attitudes and attitudes like them that God wants us to be cautious of. And brothers and sisters, all of us have experienced the weight of burdens. Throw sin in the mix and those burdens become even heavier. 
And as a family of God, we ought to help each other bear those burdens for the purpose of being freed from its weight. James 5, 19 through 20 says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And that's the goal of restoration. Returning someone back to their previous condition in Christ. And we do that by gently speaking the truth of God's word and loving them even when they don't deserve it, just like Christ does with us. And that's how we fulfill the law of Christ mentioned in verse 2, by being Christ-like towards those who are stuck in sin. And you can do this by being someone's accountability. You could be the one to encourage them to fight through the temptation, to pray for them, to let them know that you're in their corner to help them beat whatever is holding them captive. Even your attitude can make a world of difference. Generally, people expect to hear about their screw-ups or hear about how bad of a person they really are. But if you're gracious to that person like Christ is towards you, it gives them the hope to conquer in Christ rather than give up simply because somebody didn't give up on them. And as you take part in this, we need to be on guard to our own hearts. And just like the, uh, we need to guard against what the Pharisees did. They became conceited by comparing their deeds to the faults of others. And that is a recipe for disaster. That's why humility is crucial for restoration. Verses 3 through 5 tells us, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. You see, when we err on pride, our hearts tend to naturally shift away from the desire to see someone restored into that trap of the comparison game. You know, gauging how spiritual we are compared to someone who's not doing so hot. That's what the Pharisees did in Luke 18.11. Lord, thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Or I'm not like those unjust people out there walking around. Sometimes we think that way. Sometimes we think, you know what, whatever they get, they deserve it. Or, it's not my problem. They should have just done better. But what's fascinating about these passages is that it it really exposes that God is just as concerned about the heart of those doing the restoring as he is with the heart of those in need of restoration. And John Piper makes the observation that if you look at these five verses... Only verse 1 is the one that mentions the one who sinned, whereas the next four all deal with the person who's doing the restoring. I find that fascinating. And one of the ways that Paul says that we can avoid conceit or pride is by remembering where we came from. Now, he isn't guilt tripping anybody in verse 3 when he says, when someone thinks he is nothing, or when someone thinks he is something, he's actually a nobody. The point that he's making is that. When someone is caught in sin, it ought to break our heart and we ought to be gentle toward those people rather than self-aggrandizing because we're not the one who committed the sin. And though you may not have committed the same sin as someone else, brothers and sisters, let's be frank, we've all committed sin. And so in that sense, we are all in the same playing field with our need for Christ. And all of us, at some point or another, were the ones in need of restoration. So therefore, we as Christians ought to be the first ones to offer hope to somebody because we've all been there. And Christ has the power to break someone from the grip that sin has on them. We've all experienced it. 
Now, he says that the other way we can guard ourselves is by taking the time to assess our own hearts. He says in verse 4 that you ought to examine your own work. And Paul uses the same word for examine, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, to describe what we do before taking communion. It literally translates that we need to scrutinize the actions and the words, the motives that flow from our heart. David echoes this in Psalm 26, too, when he says, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. So we ought to pray and ask God to reveal the attitudes that might be in our hearts that aren't contributing to the restoration process. And a way to test that would simply be to go over to the uh, fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and we can go through each one, one at a time. God, am I being patient with this person? God, am I being tenderhearted toward this person? God, am I being gentle toward this person? Am I exercising self-control when I think I want to say something I know I ought to, or do I have a loose tongue? Now, sometimes it's obvious. Now, if you're yelling at somebody or if you're being sarcastic and making those remarks, but then again, sometimes our heart can be deceitful in making us think that we're justified in saying or doing those things because we are dealing with a dirty, rotten sinner. And when those attitudes are brought to our attention, we need to repent of those as well. Now, there's two reasons as to why we should examine ourselves, and that's the first one. The other is that it also reveals the areas where you're being obedient to God. So don't feel like after close examination that if God doesn't reveal any sin in your life that you need to go on a ghost hunt and just have to try to find something wrong. You know, it's, it's a measure that we ought to take to correct the sinful attitudes in our hearts and to keep us from falling into sin in the first place. But at the same time, it shows the areas in your life that you're faithfully reflecting the character of Christ to others, particularly the manner in which you deal with their sin. And you ought to take great joy in that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. You see, when you're involved in restoring someone from sin, you ought to be proud in that. Not because you measure up better than the person, but because the Spirit of God is working through you to correct the path that someone's on and turn them back to Christ to be free again. And that's a wonderful work. Now finally, Paul gives us the last way that we can uh, be cautious of falling into pride. He says in verse 5, each one will bear his own load. Now let's back up a little bit because at first glance he seems to contradict himself from what he says in verse 2. Are we to bear each other's loads or are we to let them bear their own? Which is it, Paul? Well, it helps to understand that the words for burden and load are referring to two different ideas. Because there are certain burdens, as in verse 2, that are so great, nobody should have to carry alone. And as God's church, we ought to lighten each other's loads as much as we can, even the burdens brought on by sin. And we lighten those burdens not by ignoring them, but gently coming along one another and, and steering each other back to the right path. However, here in verse 5, there are certain loads that we must carry alone. So what does that have to do with pride? Well, each of us are individually accountable to God for the life that we live here on earth. And this load is referring to the conduct that we have as Christians, not only in our personal lives, but also how we conduct ourselves towards others. And what he's saying is, is that unlike the Pharisees, we ought to be cautious that no matter how well we think our conduct is, as it relates to the conduct of others, 
God isn't concerned with how well we rate against somebody else. When we stand before God, we're all going to be judged by whether or not Jesus is our Lord, and if he is, it ought to be seen through how we treat others here and now, particularly when they're in sin. The fact is, without Jesus, none of us would stand justified before God, not even if we were, quote, better Christians than somebody else. Without Christ, there would be no hope of restoration, no liberation from sin, no freedom from the bondage of idols. And without Christ, even if we were hypothetically able to defeat one sin, we would fall right back into another that would take its place, and it would be an ongoing, continuous, hopeless cycle. And trying to fight sin alone, brothers and sisters, or sending the message to others that they just need to try harder is a burden that no one should have to carry because they can't. It's impossible. It's impossible for everybody except one. Isaiah 53 talks about how Jesus, the one man who could carry the burdens of our sin, carried them to a cross so that we could be free from the weight. Verses 4 through 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And get this, with his wounds we are healed. Now there are still residual effects from sin, but sin no longer has domain or control over the lives of those who put their trust in Christ. And sometimes we all forget that, and we try to carry the weight of sin on our own. And we adopt that philosophy of we just need to try harder. Or sometimes we just give up. And when we begin to think that way about our sins or the sins of others, we need to remember the invitation that Jesus not only gives gives to us, but he gives to everybody. That invitation is to come to him for rest, to be restored. And that is why in Matthew 11, 28, he says, Jesus' own words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now that is the message that we ought to be sending to other people who are hopelessly stuck in sin. That Christ, through him, there is hope for restoration. And one way that we practically show that is by treating those stuck in sin with gentleness a fruit of God's Spirit working inside you. Now, you can't force someone to change, and you can't force the will of God on somebody, but you can still love them even when they don't deserve it, just like Christ does with each one of us. And Lord willing, by His grace, He will set the heart of the broken straight again, and He uses you to accomplish that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, this message because I can totally resonate to that in my own life and I can count off many people who have been gentle towards me when I was in sin and uh, had a huge impact on my life that uh, the conduct that that they reflect that's like Christ does have power. God, and, and you work through them to change even the hardest of hearts. God, I don't know where I would be without your grace. Um, 
But God, we thank you that you do freely extend that and that uh, we have the, the opportunity and the privilege to share with others who feel like they're hopeless and feel like they can never get out of whatever struggle they're in that we have the truth to share with them that they can by your power. And uh, as we come across those opportunities in our life, I ask that you continue to uh, reveal the areas that we need to repent of, but I also pray that you show us where we are reflecting your character, where we are being Christ-like, and that uh, you give us the motivation to keep showing that and sharing that with others. And uh, Father, it's, it's a work in progress. We don't always... Uh, we don't always do that. But again, it's your grace that sets us back on the right path as well. And uh, I thank you for your strength. I thank you for your forgiveness. And I thank you for your mercy. And we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen.